0: Hello there! This introduction is in lieu of a cool theme tune, so if you like, you can imagine one here. Okay, so this podcast is in support of my book Around Seria in 20 Days. A couple of weeks ago a friend of mine, jokingly, asked when the audio version of my book would be released. He was, of course, taking the piss, but this got me thinking, and the fruit of my thinking is this podcast. It's going to be twice weekly, and each episode will be a chapter from around Serie a in 20 days. Tell a friend or a stranger about it. Subscribe on iTunes, and please, for their metrics, leave a review. And if you like what you hear, you can even buy the book too. The website for that and much more is www.michaelnimmo.com. That's www.michaelnimmo.com. How do you spell Michael Nimmo, you ask? Well, I'll explain it to you. It is, of course, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Nimmo, my surname, which you can probably see on the podcast, is N for November, I-M-M for Michael Michael, O. Cheers, and ciao for now. Introduction. What's all this then? I felt someone's weight press down on my shoulder. I started to fall. I wasn't alone. People were being tossed forward and to the sides as if they had been swept up in a wave. The simple fact was that we had been. Miles from the sea, Diego Melito's goal up the other end had released a surge of passion. A sudden rush of joy. Thousands of voices forming one elongated, incomprehensible roar. It's a cliche that time can slow down when you feel in danger, but it did for me. I fell forward among the thicket of bodies, thinking, bollocks, this is it. The moment stretched like a bungee cord, and it felt as if I had time to write a postcard to my folks back home explaining that I was about to be crushed in the Gradinata Nord. When I hit the ground, an arm reached out towards me and pulled me up, snapping everything back into focus. The roar was subsiding, and the players were making their way back to the centre circle. Just as Il Principe's goal unleashed a surge of noise and tumbling bodies, the resultant pandemonium around me flooded my system with adrenaline. Each week up and down the country, the 12th man or woman comes out of the woodwork and makes their way to stadia. Beforehand, they might have a few beers with their friends. Alternatively, they might make use of the nerve-soaked time before kick-off to drop in on their relatives. They might rush directly to the turnstiles in time for the whistle, family or other commitments, taking priority over pre-match rituals. What's important though is that they are there, they're present. Chewing over the match on Monday morning with colleagues, the goals, the refereeing clangers and the near misses are as fixed in people's Monday schedules as grumbling about it being Monday again already. Although the armchair viewer might have a better view on controversies, the best place to watch football is at the stadium. After all, You can watch the highlights when you get home. Of course it's not always possible to be present but for a die-hard fan not being at the stadium is a form of torture. The in-between option, watching the match in a pub with friends, doesn't happen as often as it does in the UK. It's just not as large a part of the culture as it is in Britain, although it does happen This is partially down to the fact that a lot of bars don't have pay-per-view TV channels. A little curiosity for you. Think about when you watch a match on TV in a pub in the UK. In the bottom corner, there's a picture of a pint glass to demonstrate that the landlords have paid for the match and it isn't being illegally broadcast. In Italy, those pubs that have TVs when showing matches on pay TV, i.e. most matches, Have a wee picture of a cocktail glass in place of a pint. Now that's civilised. When fans talk about football they often get caught up in the details. When outsiders talk about football they talk in generalities. It'd seem there's no middle ground. A season ticket holder will tell you in minute detail about a match-winning goal from 10 years ago. After a controversy or tragedy a talking head will write a newspaper column bemoaning the culture, or lack thereof, of fans or the overpaid brattish players. Just as the game can cause swings of emotion from the most wretched Derby defeat to the most euphoric last-minute winner, the game attracts, and supplies, hyperbole by the ton from all sides. Bill Shankly famously said that Some people think football is a matter of life and death. I assure you, it's much more serious than that. This is one thing I want to clear up straight away. Football is not a proxy religion. Yes, thousands of people congregate every Sunday, and in this communion they find a sense of belonging. Fans can evangelise just as the most devout believer. Particularly in the globalised football world of today, fans may worship swarthy chaps with flowing locks and a beard. However, when their contract expires and they do one, fans quickly see the light and realise that said player wasn't the messiah after all. Religions have core tenets. A code of conduct that people should follow. Football doesn't. The underpinning goal in football is money and accumulating as much of it as possible, whether you're a player, an agent, a coach, or an owner. Plus, if you ever found yourself in a dilemma and asked what would Mario Balotelli do, you would probably end up in bother and a visit from the police or the fire brigade. Etymologically speaking, football and religion do share something, though. Did you know that the word fan stems from the Latin word fanaticus? meaning, insanely but divinely inspired. Or that this was adapted into English as fanatic in the 16th century, being defined as marked by excessive enthusiasm and often intense, uncritical devotion. If yes, well done. If not, now you do. This fanaticism is, as you well know, used in conjunction with religion, as well as less spiritually fulfilling pastimes. I wouldn't be the first to argue, however, that a fan's devotion to their team has more in common with illness or addiction. And indeed, the origin of the Italian word for fan, tifo, was used to refer to a kind of illness that was characterised by a high fever, confused state, and a lack of lucidity that would settle on the victim's brain like a blanket, that this word with this meaning would come to be used in relation to those who support a team is telling. Being a supporter is an illness with varying levels of strength. Some people can be a supporter but only occasionally go to the stadium, while others, with a higher dose of TIFO in their systems, cede control over some of their days to the vagaries of football. As Nick Hornby remarked in Fever Pitch, football is regarded as a given disability that has to be worked around. If I were wheelchair bound, nobody close to me would organise anything in a top floor flat, so why would they plan anything for a winter Saturday afternoon? Why should I want to write a book about Italian football then? Everyone knows it's fixed. Everyone knows it's been dethroned as the best league in the world. I concede that it's a very good question, and one that I have asked myself more than once, most typically when I've been stood on a station platform waiting on my delayed train to take me to a match or home. Even more pertinent is the question, who am I? And why should a Scot write about Italian football? Regarding the latter question, I reply, why not? My first experience of Genoa, as mentioned at the start, showed me another way of watching football. Having shivered my way through seasons of watching Hibbs back home in Edinburgh, this passion, unrealiness and colour was intoxicating. It was also sunny and warm, a revolutionary concept. If football is the opiate of the masses, then who best to comment on its effect than a relatively impartial observer? Serie A, its stadia and fans are still relatively crude substances they lack the gentrified, buffed and sanitised sheen of England's top league. Going to a stadium in the Bel Paese feels like getting back in touch with a form of football that is increasingly being eliminated in the name of progress and in pursuit of the be-all and end-all money. On top of this, as I'm not from here, I consider myself to be impartial enough to observe the teams and fans without any cultural pressure to demonise or idolise any particular team. I do support a team here, but hopefully that doesn't impinge my judgement. A bit of background can help shed light on why I'm doing this. In 2008, I came to Italy without any great interest in the country, no knowledge of the language, and a plan to get out after three years max. I'm still here. There's something that keeps me here. Something intangible. My laziness? Something that I miss when I go back to Scotland in August and at Christmas. It can't be the weather, because as I'm writing this, the humidity is making me melt into my chair in a puddle of sweat. It can't be the public services, as you could be forgiven for thinking that they don't exist, despite employing a huge number of people. That said, I can't imagine dying here. Mostly because I wouldn't even like to begin to imagine how much paperwork I'd have to do beforehand. Where do you intend to die? How? Why? Please include a full medical background of any surviving family members along with the church they were baptised in. And finally, attach a stamp with a value of x euros. No stamp equals no processing of your form. However, I consider myself quite lucky because when I arrived I met good people and so despite landing in a foreign country I didn't feel like a total alien. On top of that I've acclimatised to the extent that I now only sweat 95% of the time. For me this is definite progress. Apart from some cultural faux pas, ordering a cappuccino after a pizza earned me a look of incredulity from a waitress. Did I know that milk on top of the pizza would cause havoc in my stomach? I think I've bedded in reasonably well and now know to order an espresso after pizza, if only to save the waitress from fretting unduly about my internal machinations. One of the things that helped the most, which brings me to the point of this book, was football. So it was that in summer 2013 I was feeling a bit restless. After being a TEFL teacher in Genoa for five years, I started to look around for a challenge. While watching football comes as easily to me as diving does to your average player, I figured that following a season of Serie A might be an interesting idea for a book. Italy has only been a unified country for 150 years, and tribalism is still alive and seething outside of the context of football. Ranging from petty jibes to more obvious racism, the country's football family is less harmonious than a hen night's karaoke session at three in the morning. Would travelling around, interviewing supporters, finding out about each team and watching a match in and among those who see their team as being an intrinsic part of their personality shed any light on the psyche of the Italian football fan? Perhaps, and even if it didn't, it'd be fun. In my opinion, it has given me a deeper understanding of what makes people tick, even when they suspect that the playing field may not be equal for everyone. I hope that this comes across in what I've written, and that you enjoy reading or listening here about my trips, thoughts, and occasional misadventures. There are a few Italian words that will crop up throughout this book. Although you may already be aware of some of them, in an effort to be inclusive as possible, Here's a brief run-through for those that don't know Italian or don't follow Italian football. When I talk about a curva, I'm talking about the main stand of a stadium. It's the home stand, the place where you find the most die-hard fans. In Italian, the plural form of a curva is curve. Italian stadia were originally, and in many cases still are, designed to be multi-sport complexes. Therefore, a good few of them have running tracks around a pitch, making the classically rectangular stadium problematic for athletes. The corva is curved, so that the runners don't have to make any drastic 90-degree turns during their races. Bandiera can refer to a flag, but is frequently also used to describe a particular player who comes to embody the squad as a whole. Think of Steven Gerrard at Liverpool, or Tony Adams at Arsenal. These players were reference points for fans, players, and media alike, and through their abilities and strengths of personality, characterized their teams. Winning the championship is referred to as winning the Scudetto. This is because the previous season's champions are entitled to include a shield on their strip, and the Italian word for shield is scudo. This distinctive symbol of victory has been used since 1924. The Italian Cup is the Coppa Italia, which is pretty self-explanatory, really. When talking about going to a match, many people use the word assistere, which can mean either attend or help. For an English speaker, it seems a much more active verb to use rather than the more passive watch or attend, and adds a sense that the fans have some significance to the event or some impact on the outcome. This sounds a little self-important, but supporters groups and ultras aren't averse to a bit of self-aggrandizing. I want to explore what it means to be a supporter in Italy. I originally hoped to speak to as many ultras, the die-hard fans, as possible. This proved to be easier said than done, as a great deal of mistrust and, bluntly, paranoia exists among these groups. I did manage to speak to a few from different teams And a collection of more regular supporters for their views too. These, along with my trips and being in and around the atmospheres of the various stadia, helped me to investigate what I wanted to know. If football fandom is an illness, what are the symptoms and when, where and how do we become infected? After all, we pay money to watch young millionaires kick a ball about and hope they care about our shirt, our team. But why is it our team? What makes this our team? With the rate that players and coaches swap strips and allegiances like top-end cars, why do we support our team? Why do we dream about winning the league, sleep restlessly before a derby, or tattoo our club's badge on our arm? What the fuck is wrong with us? And how do you say the referees a wanker in Italian? It's actually quite an easy question to answer. L'arbitro è cornotto. Gets a bit lost in translation. The referees are cuckold. Of course, if you like calcio, then this will come more easily for you. But if you don't, I hope that there's something interesting for you too. After all, while not writing books that stimulated my pre-teenage imagination, Terry Pratchett hit the nail on the head when he said, The thing about football, the important thing about football, is that it's not just about football. Okay, so, I hope you enjoyed that. There will be another 20 plus episodes coming up in the following weeks and months. www.michaelnimmel.com is the address to find out more about the book and the blog, and you'll also find the podcast there, or, if you prefer, on iTunes. Thank you very much, and ciao!